We're going to continue in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 31. While you're turning there, again, Acts 4, um, 23 through 31, I'll just kind of give you a quick uh, recap of at least Acts chapter 4, right? So we have Peter and John. Peter and John, they go to the temple and they heal a man who had, um, was, was scripture says, lame, right? He was, he was crippled, right? And in fact, he was crippled from, from birth. And so they heal this man and it, it results in them drawing a crowd, right? So this guy that everybody knows, and that guy out there in front of the gate that's been crippled forever, right? He's healed. It draws this crowd. And Peter and John sees that opportunity to proclaim the gospel, right? So they're, they're there at the temple. They're preaching the gospel of Christ, and essentially they're arrested for it, right? And they take them in before the Sanhedrin. They hold them uh, overnight. They question them. They question what they're they're doing. And in fact, the Sanhedrin, right, Pharisees, Sadducees, they've got nothing to, to, to keep them on beyond what they've already kept them, nothing to officially charge them with. And so they essentially threaten them and they, they command them, if you will, not to preach the gospel, right? Peter and John say, whatever, essentially, you know, you, you determine what's right. We're going to follow God and not do as you tell us to do, right? And then they release them. Right? So last week we, we, or last week, last time we examined kind of that latter part and we talked about that in relation to, to Christian persecution, right? I believe that Peter and John, I mean, it was a form of persecution that they, um, that they encountered it. Now it wasn't crucifixion, which Peter would later on in his life experience, right? It wasn't being banished to an island, right? That John would, would later experience, but on, on a level, even if on a light level, it was um, at least for them, the the beginning of, of persecution for Christ's sake. And we examine that even line of our own lives and what's coming, I believe, down the road for us today as, as a church and as believers living in the world that we live in. So today we're going to look at Acts 40, um, I'm sorry, Acts 4, 23 through, through 30 run. I've titled today's sermon, so Randy, you can listen so you don't have to text me what the sermon title was for the, the, the website. Um, no, uh, Peter and John's response to persecution. So in this, in this text, I believe what we have we, uh, when it comes to their response to persecution, it's both descriptive, that is we see how Peter and John and the church responded to this kind of beginning if you will, of persecution. And I think it's not only descriptive, but I also think it is prescriptive, right? Where we do have in part, I think, some instruction as to how we are to respond when we encounter persecution. I don't believe that it's an exhaustive, um, you know, uh, list or an exhaustive prescription, right? Understand that there might be different ways outside of this that we do respond, but I do believe overall that it is prescriptive and how in part we should respond to Christians' persecution, especially maybe when it comes from, you know, the government. So let's, uh, let's read there here now. Um, again, Acts 4, 23 through 31. When they, Peter and John, right, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God and boldness. So I'm going to give you um, kind of the, the main points for this, and then we'll go through that. So um, Peter and John, their response, descriptive, prescriptive. First is that they sought Christian fellowship. And the second point we'll then examine is that they praised God, and they did that in, in, in two ways. Um, and then the last thing that they did was they prayed for boldness. So they sought Christian fellowship, they praised God, and then they, they prayed. Verse 23 we see that Peter and John, when they were released, they what? They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So persecution, okay, should, and I'll say has, right, um, have, um, should have a unifying effect on the church. And when you think about when you think about it, um, one, where else are we going to go? I mean, humanly speaking, right? I mean, our, our first response as believers should be to run to Christ, right? I mean, you know, when we as believers experience trouble in life and heartache in life and pain in life and trials and whatever in life, our, our first response should, should be to run to Christ. Now, that being said, where where else are we going to go? I mean, as, as we experience trouble in life, be it persecution or not, I mean, are we going to run to our, our, our godless friends, right? Our, our secular neighbors, our atheistic boss, our Jehovah's Witness, you know, people down the road? No, right? We shouldn't be running to them, right? If, if you are... I guess I would I would ask why, or maybe you should ask yourself why. But where where else where else are we going to go? Where as believers, where else are we going to find comfort, care, love, sympathy? Right? Galatians six two says that we're what as 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 believers we're to bear one another's burdens. Right? Romans twelve fifteen says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those. Who weep, and so I can see how persecution, right, in this in this passage, um, in this situation, I can see how persecution drove drove them together. But here's the thing: they were already. And when I say they, I'm not ta- I'm talking about Peter and John in the early church, right? Those those who were there at the time, those that they would have considered a part of that 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 fellowship, right? Because we know that there were other believers outside of them. I mean, just going back to the day of Pentecost, I suspect that at this point, um, you know, not not a whole lot of time later, but some of those believers started to disperse. But within this local fellowship, right, this, this apostles disciples, um, listen, they were already unified and or they were being unified 
And so it, it makes sense that it was natural for them to to come together um, as they as they were persecuted, as they experienced these these trials in life. And I, as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the the unity of the church, a unity of people, I guess, if you will. I, I was thinking one of my favorite um, favorite movies or TV series or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what it is. Is Band of Brothers? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe not. But and it, you know, it, it goes through the 101st Airborne um, in World War II and um, Easy Company, and you see this this bond and this unity that these men have together because of essentially this traumatic experience of war that that they've been through together and how it's drawn them close together. And as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about us as Christians, right? We have we have a bond, right? That that should right draw us closer than any other experience, any other relationship that could possibly draw us to, uh, together, and that's Christ, right? So, so anytime you see something like that, great movie, right? We love it. Okay. Oh, look at, look at the unity that they experience. I mean, look at the bond that they have. That's awesome, right? But that should pale in comparison to the bond that we have as Christians have, we haven't been through a traumatic experience together. Maybe we haven't been through a traumatic experience together. Maybe we haven't lived together. Maybe we don't even know each other that well. Last night we had um, Benjamin and Hillary over for supper. And as I was just thinking about that, I was thinking about Benjamin. You know, I visited with him a little bit when he was still in Kenya via, via Skype and via, via email and via, via Facebook. I got to know him in part. Um, through Hillary, and and you know he got to know me in part through Hillary, right? Hadn't been through some traumatic experience, hadn't hadn't done a whole lot of talking outside of those those few ways that we you know I just just explained, and yet when he was here last October, right, was it Reformation Day I think when he was here, and I saw him, it was like. It was like my long-lost brother that I hadn't seen in ages but knew well, right? And again, it wasn't because of some experience, right? Um, it wasn't because I'd spent my whole life with him, but it was because of the bond that we had and have in Christ. And so we see with Peter and John how their first response was to run to the church, Right? And how God used this experience to unify them. Thinking about that in relation to us as a church. If we aren't seeking unity now though, right? If as believers we aren't attempting to go to grow closer in, in our relationships, right? Is it is it reasonable to expect that, you know, as we go through trials, possibly persecution, that that God will use that to, to grow us even closer together? I think if we're seeking those things now and seeking to do that now, I think, yeah, I think that's a reasonable expectation. But if as a church we're, we're not, and I think we are. Let me say that. I mean, I, I do believe as a church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, us, I do think we're growing, right, um, in our relationships with one another. We're pursuing that. Perfected? No. Right? But I think we're pursuing that. And because we're pursuing that, I do think it's a reasonable expectation, right, that as we endure as we suffer as we go through trials right god will use those things to draw us closer 
together as a church. And so, again, the important thing is, is just as Peter and John sought out Christian fellowship under persecution, we should be seeking out Christian fellowship now that God would use that to grow us closer together as a church. So their first response, again, was that they sought Christian fellowship. The next thing that they did was that they praised they praised God. Verse 24a says, and when they heard it, right, this is the church, when they heard what had happened to Peter and John, it says they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The first thing that they did was they lifted up their voices in prayer and in praise. They were thankful, right? One, they were thankful for Peter and John's deliverance. Right? I mean, here they were being held against their, their will. They were being questioned. I'm sure had the Sanhedrin had the opportunity to do to them what they essentially did and had ordered done to Christ, they would have done it. And so they were thankful for Peter and John's deliverance. Right? They were thankful for the spread of the gospel. I mean, that's what was happening, right? I mean, that's what brought them into this trouble in the first place. They healed this guy, right? That wasn't the important part. The important part was they healed this guy. God used that. Chris, this morning was a... Where is... I I was thinking about your, your lesson this morning in relation to signs and wonders and miracles, right? So God used this this miracle, this gift of healing that Peter and John had, had given to this man, they used it to confirm them as Christ's messengers, as Christ's message was proclaimed, and God was using that to save these people. So the church was rejoicing in the salvation of the lost. And third, they were thankful, I believe, for what persecution provides the believer. Right? And I think we can do that, so we'll, we'll camp on that for a minute. Um, I think we can be thankful for what persecution provides without being thankful for um, maybe the act of persecution. Does, does that make sense? I mean, if, if, if you, your right hand was cut off for being a Christian, right? And I, I don't know that I'd be like, well, I'm really thankful for this pain. I mean, pain can be a good thing. We get that, right? And I'm, 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 I'm thankful for the fact that this guy hurt me, right? I mean, that, that doesn't, that kind of, I don't know that I, I get that, right? But as believers, we can be thankful for what that persecution provides for us in our life. Um, persecution, one, it, it grows the individual, right? It has a sanctifying effect on those who are persecuted. Let's look at um, Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, so the persecuted are are what? Are blessed. 
So we should be grateful, okay, maybe not for the pain, maybe not for the actual act of persecution itself, but, but thankful for what it provides. It says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is what? The kingdom of, of heaven. Let's look at James, um, James chapter 1. James 1, um, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So, so the joy, again, isn't necessarily focused on whatever the trial was, but what the trial is producing, right? Produces steadfastness that that might have its full effect that you as a believer may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, talking about the sanctification of the, the individual. Um, you know, we, we've had people in this church that have, that have gone through illness, right? Um, that, that have maybe lost loved ones, that have lost jobs, that have gone through various trials. And as we've talked to those people and as we've, we've cried with them and as we've prayed with them and as we've laughed with them and loved on them, the story that we keep hearing told, and maybe you are one of those individuals, is, you know, I, I mean, no, the pain, we didn't really like that, and, and the heartache wasn't all that great. But what God has done in us and through us as we've gone through this has just been absolutely amazing. So the joy hasn't been in the sickness, right? But what the sickness has provided, the joy maybe isn't in the loss, but what God has done you know, in that and, and through that. The joy isn't necessarily in the trial in and of itself, but again, the, the product of what God has done in that trial and through that trial. So again, in part, the church is, is rejoicing. As Peter and John are telling the story, the church is rejoicing in what this persecution has provided and is providing for not just Peter and John, but for the church. And what's coming for them is that it is... And it does um, sanctify the believer. It grows the individual. The second thing is, is this. It's persecution. It grows the church. Now, the I mean, first point was it does. I mean, it should, like, grow the church in unity. Again, as we go through trials in life, be it persecution or just personal trials, it should grow us together as, as a body, right? But it also actually grows the church, right? I mean, the, the, the gospel right, typically goes forth and goes forth um, even at a greater speed when the church is being persecuted, right? We, we have the testimony of Stephen, right? I mean, what a fant- I mean, not being crushed by stones, not fantastic, right? I mean, I wouldn't want that for any of us, right? But what a fantastic, okay, um, what a fantastic means, I guess, if you will, to get the gospel out of Jerusalem, right? That it would begin to spread to the remotest parts of the world. Stephen was martyred, right? Christians were being persecuted, and it forced believers to leave Jerusalem, right? To take the gospel with them. And we've got this account all through Acts where, where it starts in Jerusalem and ends up in Rome, which is, which is the world. Persecution grows 
the church. We see that through Paul's various encounters. He goes to this city. Ah, he's planning on staying for a while. He's persecuted. So guess what? Now that the gospel's been dropped in this city, he leaves and he goes and he drops it somewhere else. And he's forced out of that city. And he goes somewhere else. And he goes somewhere else. And he goes somewhere else. And, and the gospel spreads, right? We, we've seen it in our We've seen it in our lifetime, the, the story. And I know I, I know I, um, I use this a lot as an example, but I think it is an incredible example. But we have it in, in Ecuador, right, with uh, Jamelia and Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, and the others that I can't remember their names, right? God used. I mean, they weren't just persecuted; they were they were murdered, martyred, murdered, right? But but God used that to take the gospel. To those people. Those people weren't receptive to those men, but they were receptive to what? The women, weren't they? And God had to get the men out of the way to get the women in there, and it just wound up being through their martyrdom that he, that he did that, right? And the church grew. Forty years ago, there was an estimated 200 Christians in Iran, right? Now there's an estimated 200,000, you know, evangelical Christians in Iran. Again, we see the church. It's not a whole lot. What do we see? We see the church growing, right, under persecution. So they were thankful. They were thankful that persecution provided for the believer. That was individual growth, sanctification, right, that that it grows the church, that is that the gospel goes forward and God uses that as a means to continue to save many. And third, they were thankful because persecution glorifies Christ. Let's go to First Peter. First Peter um, four, twelve through sixteen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. One, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Said, persecution of Christ's church glorifies Christ. He uses it, right, for his glory. How how is that? I was thinking about that because I kind of struggle with that concept some. I mean, just not like I'm against it struggle, but like trying to wrap my mind around how is it, I mean, how is it that Andy walks out on the street and someone lops his head off because he's a Christian. How does that glorify Christ? Right? I mean, how can that glorify Christ? I mean, we know that God can use that for his glory, but but how can that glorify Christ? Right? Um, 
I mean, here, here's the only thing that I can come up with, right? If your personal testimony in your life about Christ is such, right, that other people know it to the extent that they want to kill you for it, that's a pretty awesome thing, right? I mean, th- think about that. Again, again for a minute, right? If, if people don't, and I'm talking about the, the, the world that is hostile to Christ. If people don't hate you, right, for your testimony, because we know that the world is at enmity with God, right? If people don't hate you for your testimony, then what? You're probably not proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But if the world hates you because you are a Christian, if someone wants to harm you or kill you because you are a Christian, or if that in fact happens, the conclusion has to be that you being faithful to live as a Christian, which includes what? Proclaiming the glorious gospel of grace. That's what glorifies Christ. Does, it, does that make sense? I mean, I hope I, I'm trying to articulate that, trying to figure that out in my own mind, but... This, this, again, it's not just the act of he was killed, that glorified God. No, I think it's the, it's the whole package. This man lived such a life, or this woman lived such a life, that in everything he was or everything she was, she proclaimed Christ to the extent that maybe those who hate Christ saw it, they heard it, they knew it, and they were, they were hostile for it, right? It glorifies Christ. So, in praise, they were thankful for what persecution provides. And in praise, they acknowledge God as sovereign Lord. Uh, Verses 24, I'm not going to read them again, but this is 24b through, through 28. But they recognized that what had happened to Peter and John... They recognize that what will happen, just what happens in life in general, happened and or happens according to the will of God. God is, God is sovereign, right? Peter and John being arrested, part of his plan, right? Peter someday being crucified, part of God's plan. John being kicked to an island, right? Part of his plan. Five missionaries killed in Ecuador, part of God's plan. And so they praised him for his sovereignty over all things. Romans eight twenty eight, right? We know that God works all things together for the good, those who love him and called according to his plan, his purpose, is his, his will, right? That God is sovereign and that he is sovereign over, ev- over everything. They acknowledged in verse 28 God's sovereignty. Um, let's go back there, 428, over what happened to Christ. So I'm going to read um, 26. 
Or 25b, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed messianic, right, pointing forward to Christ, a quote from the Old Testament. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Listen. What, what happened to Christ was that that was God's plan, right? I mean, he, he, none of it like caught God off surprise. Like before the foundation of the earth was ever laid, right? God had planned for this to happen, right? And they, they acknowledged that. Now, now that doesn't make God responsible. I mean, the most evil crime that has ever been committed was committed against Christ, right? The most heinous sin, if you will, was what happened to Christ, but that doesn't make God responsible for that sin. We know that God's not the author of sin, but we know what happened happened according to God's plan, right? Though he wasn't the perpetrator of the evil. Um, Isaiah 53.10 says, uh, regarding Christ, looking forward to what would happen to Jesus, so that it was God's will to crush him. Again, that was God's will, but he didn't perpetrate, again, the evil against Christ. Um, Acts 20, uh, let's look at Acts, go back a couple chapters to 22 through, uh, uh, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in him, did through him in, him your, in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, right, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? So it was God's plan, right? He was, he was delivered up by God. In fact, Jesus himself said, I lay down my life, Right? Nobody's going to take it from me. I'm going to freely give it. It doesn't make him responsible for the murder, right? It was God's plan, right? And then it says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Then what? You crucified and killed, a ha- uh, and killed sorry, by the hands of lawless men. So it was, it was God's plan, happened according to God's will, but it was in fact man who committed the crime. It was man who committed the heinous act. It was man who sinned in that, not, not God. See, God, um, and, and I think they, they acknowledge this, God uses sin sinlessly. I know you've, you've heard this before, and you've heard Randy say it, and you've heard me say it, and I know you've heard others say it, but God uses sin sinlessly. And that's how we can say that it was God's will for this to happen. It doesn't make God, again, the, the perpetrator of evil, uh, responsible for evil, not the author of sin, but we see God using sin sinlessly, right? We see it in the death of Christ. God used sin sinlessly, and he was sovereign over that, right? In the case of Peter and John being arrested for healing a man and for proclaiming the gospel, right? Again, God, God used that sin of arresting them, right, sinlessly, because it emboldened 
Peter and John and the church even more to go out and to continue proclaiming the gospel. So we call this God's permissive, God's permissive will, what God allows, right? There's a difference between what he allows and what he, in fact, um, accomplishes, if you will. Um, we could consider that maybe God in part, God's, God's perfect will, what he does, right? He, he didn't do the act of killing Christ, right? Man did that, but he permitted it according to his perfect will and his perfect plan, and he used sin sinlessly, right? So in praise, they acknowledge God as sovereign Lord, again, recognizing what happened and what will happen, right, happened according to the perfect will of God. They also recognize this, that the fight against the sovereign creator is a vain task. God always gets what he wants. God always gets who he wants. And God always wins. So they were praising God for what had happened, right? Third thing they did was they prayed for boldness. Um, Verse 29, Acts 4, um, 29 and 30. Now, I find this, I find this amazing, though. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. Um, and now, Lord, so they're, they're praying here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Um, I mean, I, I almost, like, find this counterintuitive. At least, like, the flesh, right, would, would in me and probably in us at times finds this, this notion of praying for boldness counterintuitive. Um, because there's that, there's that part, I think, in us that's like, oh, man, we don't want to be persecuted per se. I, mean, I don't want to suffer. I don't want my head cut off. Or, you know, I, mean, I don't want my hand lopped off. I don't want this to happen. I don't want that. Maybe some of us more realistically in our lives. I don't want to be fired for my faith. Right? I don't, you know, don't want to be kicked out of this for what I believe. So maybe I'll just you know, tone it down tone it down a little bit, right? Maybe I just won't. Next time someone's at work and they're like, hey, what do you think about that, that, that gay marriage deal? Like, I'll just be, I'll change the subject, right? I'm like, hey, did you watch the game last night? Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like what, at least I think sometimes the flesh in us wants us to do. Let's just turn it down. Let's just kind of keep, let's just kind of keep quiet. Maybe if we were hauled in for preaching the gospel, We'd just go away quietly and be like, okay, I'm just going to live my quiet life and not rock the boat anymore. And I think that's what the flesh in us sometimes, maybe that's what we would do in that situation to kind of just preserve what we've got going on, right? But that's not what they did. And I don't believe that, that that's what we would do actually facing persecution, right? It would embolden us. It emboldened them to the point that they prayed for boldness. All right. I'll see you're 20 and I'll raise you 50. Let's bring it. Let's go, right? You're going to tell me not to preach Christ? 
I'm going to preach him 10 times more than I preached him before. I mean, that's what they were praying for. God, give us this boldness. Now that we're being persecuted, we're going to be persecuted for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And so God, give us an even greater boldness than what we have, that we would go forward and that we would faithfully proclaim your gospel and that we wouldn't back down. And in fact, not backing down, we'd go the opposite. We'd go the opposite direction, right? They didn't, they weren't praying just help us stand firm in our faith. I mean, we want that, right? Yes, we want to stand firm in our faith, right? But again, they wanted to be bold and they wanted to grow in this. And again, this is really the testimony throughout history that we have, isn't it? I mean, I was just, I'm, I'm, I love the, you know, Martin Luther, right? And I'm thinking about when he's like being questioned, right? And he gives his, his, his speech or whatever we're going to call that. And he's just ready to go. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I mean, he was emboldened by the persecution, if you will, that, that he was placed under. Emboldened by it. I mean, again, I think it's something that I fight at times. And I'm like, man, I'm glad they didn't ask me that question. Because I don't know that I would respond in the same, I don't know that I would respond in the same way. Again, I, I think we would. I hope we would. We need to pray for that, right? Again, I think that's in part how, how we prepare. We need to be bold now. We need to be praying for boldness to, today. Because if we're not being bold now, but we're running and hiding now, well, there never will be persecution for us, right? Because we're going to be under our rocks. So we need to be bold today. We need to be praying for boldness. Now, they pray for, I'm not going to uh, 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 elaborate on this, but they prayed for miracles and healing and signs. And Chris kind of addressed this this morning, which was, a, which was a great lesson. Listen, they were praying for these things, right? Um, in essence, for the sake of, of the gospel, as a means to spread the gospel by confirming God's messengers and, and the message that, that they proclaimed. Okay, I mean, that was the purpose of the signs and the wonders and, and the miraculous things that occurred with that, was confirming the message and the, the messengers. But them praying for this, right, their focus wasn't on signs and wonders and miracles, their, their focus was on the advance of the gospel, the growth of the kingdom. That's, that's what they were fixated on, if you will. They wanted to see the gospel go forward. And as, as I was thinking about that, I'm like, well, how do we, how do, we do that today, right? Um, I think we still pray for miracles, right? Listen, anytime God raises a dead man to life. It's a miracle, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the lost are dead once were as well in their trespasses and sin. And a dead man cannot raise, or a woman cannot raise him or herself from the dead, spiritually dead. The lost are spiritually dead, and they can't do anything. A dead man can do what? Nothing, right? And so when we pray for God to save the lost, we're praying for a miracle. Miracle is something that only God can do, right? We're praying that he would raise the dead to life. And so we do the same thing that, that they do. They pray for miracles. We pray for miracles that God would raise the dead to life, that the gospel would go forward and God would do what only God can do, and that is to 
save the lost. So again, I think practically speaking, how we apply that today, we're not under this persecution. I mean, I don't feel persecuted right now. Again, last time, I think it's coming. It's right around the corner, right? But we need to be as a church, right, seeking unity now, right? We need to be growing in our relationships now, um, individually, right, corporately, right? So when as a church we are persecuted, we run to really the only place aside from Christ that we have to run, and that's to one another, Right? But if we're not seeking that now, are we going to do that? You know, you got kind of like the lone Christians out there. They like get their Sunday going on TV. At least that's what they think they're doing. Oh, we just watch church at home. We just do home church at the. I mean, there is a such thing as home church, but like the people that just like watch it on the internet on TV. That's not home. That's not church, right? That's 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 not it. Where are they going to go? They're not going to go anywhere. They're just going to stay home when persecution hits, right? Because they've been practicing to do what? Stay at home, right? So we need to be practicing and preparing now to what? To come together, right? So we prepare for it. We're not under it, but we prepare for it, right? We prepare for what? Praying for boldness now. They prayed for continued boldness. We pray for boldness now. God, let us be bold now so that we'll be bold then, right? And again, they prayed for the miraculous when it comes to the spread of the gospel, and we need to do the same thing. We don't put God in a in a box, right? Um, you know, we talk about, again, the miraculous raising the spiritually dead to spiritual life. But listen, there are, there are countries out there, there are places in this world that, that are dark. And the gospel has never penetrated that, that darkness. I was, I was reading about, and I don't remember any of the details, but there's some island somewhere. That's real vague, right? Some island somewhere. There's lots of islands somewhere. There's some island somewhere out in Indian Ocean, somewhere over there, right? where there is a people group on that island that has never had, at least by historical record, any outside contact whatsoever. And the country, I think, it, I think it's India somewhere. Has anyone heard this? Am I just like, I'm not making this up. And the country that owns the waters around there has completely and totally like within a certain radius around that island banned all access to the island. The government of that country that controls the territory has never sent a person there. People aren't allowed to go there. They just want to keep those, those untouched people untouched, right? So I'm reading the, this article, USA Today, whatever it is. This was months ago about this island with these people that have never had outside uh, anything, and the government is not allowing outside anything. Listen, it's going to take a miracle to get the gospel to those people, and I think that we can pray for it, and I think God can do whatever God wants to do, and if he wants to get the gospel there, God can and will get the gospel there. And so I think we can pray for miracles like that. God, do what only you can do because we can't, we can't do it. We can't, we can't, they won't let, we can't do it. But God, you can do it, right? And so we pray for miracles like that, not that a leg would be regenerated or some crazy thing that some people want today, right? But we, like them, pray for miracles that God would do what only God does, and that's continue to seek and to save that which is lost. And then verse 31 says this, And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Um, I'm going to address the second part of that verse first. Talking about filling with the Holy Spirit 
This is just a fresh filling, uh, uh, empowering, or manifestation. It wasn't like, um, and, and depending on who you read, it goes different ways. But it wasn't like, all right, Peter was given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and God withdrew the Holy Spirit, and then he gave him the Holy Spirit back again. That's not, that's not what had happened. All right, Peter was given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? He was filled with it. They were being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this control in their life, this empowering by the Holy Spirit in their life was made fresh and renewed, okay? That's what it means by they were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? But, but going to the first part about how God answered and the place was shaken, <laughs> that's not normative, right? Back then it wasn't normative, right? Um, I'm going to say it's definitely not normative now, okay? Randy was talking about preaching down in Ardmore and he had made some point right then the thunder, wasn't that? You talking about that, right? Something like that. I don't, I don't think that God was trying to make a point. God's exclamation point, right? Now, could God do that? I'm not going to put him in a box and say that God doesn't, you know, work certain things out. The point is this, not that we should be looking for confirmation. Let's pray for something. And maybe the train will come through and that will be God's confirmation that... No. The point is that God answers prayer. Specifically, when we pray for boldness as they had prayed for boldness. I promise you, church, that if we, if we pray for the advance of the gospel, right? That if we seek and we pray for unity, that we pray for boldness in our faith, I promise you that just as God had answered them, that he'll answer us as well. I think that, that's the point of that, not that we should be looking for some sign. Right? God will give and will grant those things he promises to give and to grant. Let's pray that God would do these things in us now so when that day comes, right, and when, when taking a stand for Christ really means something, right, it means that you might lose your house, it means that you might lose your job, it means that you might lose your freedom, that when that day comes, we'll be ready for it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, um, again, your word, and I thank you for that which you revealed to us and have revealed to us through your word, the, 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 this, this, I guess, story. It's not just a story. I mean, we, we know it happened with Peter and John, and, and we see how they responded, God, and, and I want that to happen to us. I mean, if we ever encounter that which they encountered, Lord, I want to respond how they responded. I want us as a church to respond how they responded. And I know that we've got to prepare for that today because if we're not ready, it will catch us by surprise and we won't respond in a way that honors you, in a way that glorifies you, and in a way that's good for us individually and good for us corporately. And so I pray, God, that as a church we would, we would seek unity, that we would grow in our, our personal relationships just individually and, and corporately. And that as a body, then you would draw us closer together as we are drawing closer to you. I pray, Father God, that we would keep in mind that which persecution provides. And not that we would ever maybe rejoice in certain pain um, and, or trials or whatever the case might be, but that we would, we would rejoice and be prepared to rejoice in the sanctifying effect that it provides in our lives and in this church and how you use all of this to grow the church, Father. I pray, God, that we would be mindful, not just mindful, but that we would pray for boldness, that we would seek to be bold, 
and to be emboldened that we would go out from here and in all aspects of our lives that we would be faithful to boldly proclaim your gospel. And that in doing that, we would be faithful to pray for your continued salvation of the lost, that you would do again only that which you can do, and that's to save the lost. Jesus, we love you. And again, we thank you for your unfailing love for us. Um, It's in your precious, your holy name that we pray.